the reading today is from Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 11. If you're following in your Bible, there are Bibles at the back you can grab as well. Um, I'll be Susan Gramberg. That's my wife this morning. So, the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, that's actually our last verse, so, of myrrh, and I'll leave you there. Okay. Well, good morning, everybody, and what a joy it is to be with you this morning and to enjoy fellowship together and to worship together, and it's great to be back here um, in Hong Kong. I guess uh, as we approach this season of Christmas, we probably have some of us somewhat mixed feelings, I imagine. I know this isn't the biggest festival of the year probably here in Hong Kong, but still for some, I think it may bring uh, a sense of separation. We're away from friends and family, some of us at this time of year, so they may be far away from us, or uh, for others, we perhaps remember some of those uh, members of our family who passed on, and we sense a sense of, we have a sense of loss for them um, at this time of year in particular. And uh, with those of us who have children and we're into presents and that kind of thing, uh, we know there's quite a bit of pressure there, you know, for uh, buying the presents and a little bit of overexcitement as the, uh, the day comes. And there's a great sense of expectation of what might be in those stockings or whatever you have here. I don't know, but um, I know that when my kids were very small, uh, they had a tremendous sense of Christmas approaching, and the tension mounted and mounted until we got to Christmas Day, and they got their presents, and then finally we could relax and actually enjoy uh, uh, Christmas Day and so forth and our time together. I think children actually notoriously get very confused about Christmas. I was hearing recently um, the story of a young boy who was very keen on football, and he was singing a carol. I don't know, I was asking before if you ever sing this here, uh, Away in a Manger, and when he um, got home from church, he was asking his mummy, uh, Mummy, what was Wayne Rooney doing in a manger? And his mummy looked a little bit puzzled, 
And then suddenly realized that what he'd been hearing was Wayne in a manger, Wayne in a manger. So, you know, these things can really lead to some confusion if you don't know who Wayne Rooney is. Well, he's a footballer who's fairly well known in England as a football player. But I think we adults also, we tend to interpret somehow um, the message of Christmas somehow through different filters depending on where we're coming from. I know for some people it's more like a business opportunity that comes around once a year and they don't want to miss out on that. Uh, maybe for others it's a bit of an excuse to, to drink a little bit too much, to eat a bit too much or whatever it is. Maybe have a good time uh, in a party and so forth. And so I think all of us, we, we tend to filter these things through different expectations, through different backgrounds that we might have. But to really understand Christmas, we need, I think, curiosity, and we need to be asking uh, the right kinds of questions. So a few moments ago, we read that rather wonderful account, I think, of these wise men, these, these magis, it says in the Greek of uh, Matthew's Gospel, who came from the east to follow the star. A huge amount of legend has grown up um, around these wise men, and especially from the third century onwards, you can find all kinds of amazing speculations. But here in Matthew's Gospel, we have a very straightforward, simple account from the first century of what actually happened, unadorned by any kind of legend. And only much later... uh, did the wise men begin to be portrayed as three wise men? It doesn't say that in the text, if you noticed. And probably the fact they gave three presents made people think, well, maybe there were three wise men, but certainly there was more than one. So here we have a group of magi, of wise men, coming to find Jesus. Well, who were they exactly? What do we know? Possibly they were astrologers from the great Parthian Empire, which at its height stretched all the way from eastern, what is now eastern Turkey, all the way through uh, to the eastern borders of what is now Iran. It was the the Roman lawyer and writer Cicero uh, who described Magi as being wise and learned men amongst the Persians. And there is historical evidence that astronomy and astrology flourished over there on the eastern side of the great Parthian Empire. And there were At that time, there were links also with uh, astronomy from from China and also from India as well. And there's quite interesting historical records about that. And, of course, the ancient Silk Road came right through parts of the old Parthian Empire. And there were plenty of uh, people who were traveling up and down the Silk Road and spreading their ideas around. There is also actually a, a tradition that the Magi came from what we now call Saudi Arabia. And in both uh, possible locations, we don't know exactly where uh, there were groups of Jewish people. We do know that. And it's quite likely that these educated star watchers would have been familiar with these ancient Jewish prophecies about a Messiah who was yet to come and who was going to come and save his people. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that uh, Daniel and his Jewish companions, when they were exiled out to Babylon for 70 years there, there, they were exiled with the Magi, it says. So they were living amongst these Magi, and probably the Magi picked up quite a lot of uh, Jewish doctrine from, the, uh, from these people. What we also need to remember also is that astrology and what we now call astronomy were very closely intertwined at that time. They separated out from the 17th century onwards, really, but at the beginning, a lot of people got interested in astronomy, what we now call astronomy, because they were interested in the message of the stars in astrology. 
It's good to remember, actually, the Bible now warns us against astrology. We listen, we're supposed to listen to what God says through his word. Uh, We're not supposed to listen to astrologers, but at the time we're talking about there was still a lot of mingling of those uh, astrology and astronomy a bit mingled together. And so that's why these wise men, they were watching these stars every night. They were out there watching very carefully to see what the latest thing was going on. So in a sense, they were the scientists of their day. They were, they were curious about what they observed. And today also, God speaks to scientists and also to his creation more, more generally through his physical creation. In Matthew 2, verse 2, the passage we just read, when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. I mean, it must have been an incredibly powerful sign in the heavens to make them get up and go, you know, to make them go on this voyage of discovery, to come all the way from the east to journey. probably took them several weeks to get to Jerusalem. Christmas cars always have them traveling on camels, and I guess that's a pretty good inference. They probably did travel on camels. It was the way to get around then. They had these heavy presents. Gold is pretty heavy, and for sure they probably traveled on their camels. And they must have been very quite rich people, quite well-resourced in order to carry out this, this mission to go and find this new king who had been born. They were carrying valuable presents. Maybe that's what gave rise to the story later on that they were kings. He doesn't say they were kings in Matthew 2. It's only later on that this story grew up, they were some sort of kings. And what about that star? I mean, what, what exactly was that star? Again, there's been a huge amount of research and speculation about that, and uh, we can't spend too much time on that point this morning because what's really for important for us this morning is where was the star pointing? What was the whole point of the visit? The whole point of their journey was to, to find this newborn king. But let me just say there's been some great work done on this um, by someone from my own university, Cambridge University, uh, Professor Colin uh, Humphreys, who's actually a professor of material science, but he's done a lot of research on exactly what this star might have been. And it's published in an article in a journal called The Science and Christian Belief. And if anyone wants that article, come to see me afterwards. I'd be very happy if you give me your email. I'd be very happy to send you um, that article. But basically what Colin Humphreys is suggesting uh, that is that the star was, uh, was a comet that became visible in 5 BC. Uh, you might think that Jesus must have been born in the year zero, but they didn't have a zero, by the way, in those days. That didn't exist uh, and in any case, there was a, a sixth-century monk called Dionysius Exiguus, and he invented this Anno Domini AD calendar that we still use today, so in the year 2017. But he made a bit of a, a mistake about his calendar, so uh, that's quite likely why Jesus was actually born in 5 BC. Why a comet? Well, comets are the most dramatic of all those celestial phenomena. They can be extremely bright. They can be easily visible to the naked eye uh, for weeks or even months. And in the text we just read, it said the star stopped over the place where the child was in Bethlehem. And that, says Professor Humphreys, also was the language used about comets. They appear to stop over a certain place where they're at a certain angle in the sky. And so that also 
points to that possibility. And in those days, the appearance of a comet was often associated with the birth of great kings and with good news. And according to Chinese records, there was a major comet that appeared in 5 BC, and that was observed for over 70 days. This was recorded in the Han Shu, the official history of the Han Dynasty, which records all the comets that appeared during that long dynasty. And we read there there were also other major astronomical events that took place uh, between 7 and 5 BC. There was a kind of build-up. So this was a crescendo. The comet may have just been the, uh, the final moment at which they thought, right, we've got to get up and go. Now we know uh, a king has been born that we should go and celebrate his birth and so forth. So what do we learn from, first of all, from this account? Well, I think we learn that God, God does and can speak to people through the physical world around us and through historical events and through the historical events sometimes of our own lives. I mean, we have no evidence, do we, that the Magi already believed in the God of the Bible as creator of the universe before they set out. We don't know what their beliefs were. But I think often as people become really observant of the world around them, as we were just thinking earlier on, as you look at the world, you think about the universe, it's very hard not to conclude that there is no God who is behind it all, who is the creator of all that exists. And so the Magi end up being curious. They go out on this journey. So seeing the heavens stimulated them to get going, to go and go on a search for the baby Jesus. But, of course, for the Magi, it was a particular star that led them eventually to worship the king. For others, it's more just generally looking at the heavens or looking at the world around them or doing science. And often it's science that leads people to God as people study the amazing uh, creation that we live in. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 19, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. And I discover actually many atheists when they start out on a journey to believe in God, they start by looking at the world around them. They just are so impressed by its complexity, by its awe, by, by the whole awful, uh, awful, full of awe kind of sense they have when they look at the world around them. I remember some years ago I was giving a talk in our own church in Cambridge to an adult education class meeting in the middle of the week, and the subject for that night was natural theology. Natural theology is all those ways in which you can learn about God or his existence of God simply by looking at the world around us. And as I started out on the talk, I thought, let's do an experiment. Uh, so I asked the little group that I said, does anybody here, anybody here became a Christian through natural theology? And the hand shot up on the front row, and the lady said, yes, I did, uh, immediately, no hesitation. I said, oh, that's interesting. Tell us more about it. And then she told us the story. She was, had been a complete atheist and never believed in God. Her parents didn't believe in God. Uh, but she was also a keen gardener. And one day she said, it was a spring day in England. The flowers were out. It was a beautiful day. And she went out and just looked suddenly with new eyes at the beauty of her garden, the flowers around and so forth. And she said in her heart, there must be a God. There's got to be a God, but all that beauty around. It was just the sense of the beauty of the world around that spoke to her. And that led her on a journey that eventually for her led up uh, to reading the Bible and to finding Christ uh, for herself. 
So when the wise men observed the star in the east, it's what led them. It's, it was the beginning of a journey. It was just the start of a journey. The, the star wasn't an end in itself, was it? It was just a means to lead them onwards, a pointer to a savior king who had just come into the world. I mean, the Magi didn't become nature worshippers or star worshippers, but they did set out to seek the one to whom the star pointed. Now, I realize in Hong Kong and in London, seeing the stars is a bit of a problem, okay? Not sort of things you see very often because of the, the glare from all the lights, and probably there's not much opportunity here uh, to kind of go out and look at your back garden, but you might be able to look at the flowers on your balcony or something like that. But I just see how God uses all kinds of events and uh, experiences that start people out on their journey of faith. They can be very, very different for different people. Francis Collins is one of the world's best-known scientists. He's actually the director of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. There's 19 institutes in the States. That represents a huge slice of all the American funding for science. That's around 31 billion U.S. dollars a year uh, spent through uh, the National Institutes of Health. Collins is also a committed Christian, but he actually started out life as an atheist with no time for God at all. In fact, he was pretty strongly anti uh, any kind of belief in God. What started Collins out on his journey of faith as a, now as a scientist, it wasn't actually his science in that case. It was uh, his own personal experience, an encounter with a woman who was dying from cancer. Because during his medical training, he was assigned to a cancer ward, and of course, a lot of people there were not all people were cured, and some were, uh, were, some were dying and so forth. And he happened to notice that the people who had real peace in their lives, that they were not so afraid of death, were people who had a faith in God through Christ. And one day he was doing his ward round. He was chatting with one of these Christian cancer patients who was an elderly lady. And she sounded like a real kind of robust lady. She just asked him, uh, Dr. Collins, she said, um, Young man, tell me, what is your purpose in life? And Collins mumbled something, and he just sort of fled, he says. He counts in his book about this experience. He suddenly realized that he did not have any real purpose in life, not beyond his own career and it's the success of his own career. It was actually that conversation, that brief conversation, that led him on a journey to start reading. And he started reading C.S. Lewis, the great writings of that Christian author uh, from an earlier era, and he started reading his Bible. And some years later, he came to know Christ personally and uh, has been a very open uh, public figure in the world of science and faith also, someone who really is not afraid to talk about his Christian faith right up front there in the public domain. And that brings us, I think, to the second thing that we learn from our passage today, that it took effort and initiative on the behalf, on part of the wise men to go and seek this new king. They had to buy some expensive presents. They had to rent their camels, or however you got hold of a camel. I don't know, maybe they owned a whole bunch of camels. I didn't know how you did that in those days. I was actually speaking at an Anglican church in England a few uh, weeks ago, and they were telling me that for their Christmas play this year, they were actually renting a couple of camels, real camels, to be part of the Christmas play. And so apparently there is some 
camel renting agency in England I didn't know about before. And there's a truck that pulls these poor camels around uh, the British Isles and, and they deliver them for Christmas plays. And I just feel a bit sorry for these camels. They must have a bit of a busy time for a few weeks. I hope they have a, a bit of a rest for the rest of the year. But anyway, the wise men, I guess, got hold of their camels. And then, uh, however they did it, they made this personal effort to reach the king. And sometimes a search involves real initiative and effort on our part. A few chapters later, in fact, in Matthew, if you go forward in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 7, we read how Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So sometimes the journey to faith takes some effort on our part, seeking, inquiring, talking to our Christian friends, maybe if we're not yet a Christian, uh, reading books like Francis Collins. Best of all, start with the New Testament. Read the Gospel of John and think about it. Read a chapter a day and start really seeking the one about whom the gospel is uh, talking about. So when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem also, they weren't afraid to ask questions. They actually, I think they asked some pretty risky questions, didn't they? They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And in the next verse, we read that King Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Well, it's not very surprising when you think about it because why he Herod, he was the king of the Jews, and here are these wise men, these scientists coming to the east telling him there was a rival king around. Wow, no wonder he got a bit upset and disturbed and worried. Here was subversion happening right on his front door. And I think what's interesting is that here in Jerusalem, uh, even before the wise men reached Bethlehem, finally, they learned a a lot more, actually, when they were in Jerusalem about the coming Messiah, which maybe they didn't know before. And that was thanks to King Herod, ironically, who was so worried about the news of the rival king that he called a quick conference. He got all his Jewish experts together, and then in verse 4 and 7, as we just read, um, he understood, they, they, they told him this long-awaited Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem. It's not very far from Jerusalem. And this Messiah, the Jewish experts told him, King Herod, he was going to be a ruler who would shepherd his people Israel. He wasn't going to be like that cruel, tyrannical Herod, not that kind of leader. But he's going to be a shepherd, they say, who would exert leadership by being a servant to his sheep, by caring for others, by being with them through life's challenges. I just love the way that these magi, these wise men, were just so single-minded. They just kept on seeking until they found the newborn king. They weren't put off by political turmoil. They weren't put off by dangers and confusion along the way. They didn't give up until they had found the king. And if we're at the beginning of our search for faith, and it's important also, I think, we don't give up on the search. We keep going until we find. I remember years ago um, when we lived in Turkey, I was teaching in university there. We had a Turkish friend um, whom we called the permanent seeker and the permanent doubter. Because this lady, she had rows of books Christian religious books in her bookcase. She had a Bible. She had a Quran. She had Christian books there and so forth. Um, but do you know, now we're still in touch with her and still several decades later, she's still doubting and still seeking and, and somehow still haven't found. She's on like a permanent journey of seeking but never really finding. And maybe God will give us some more time. I don't know. But we kind of feel so sad for this lady who seems to be never actually finding faith. Because the whole point about seeking 
is to find, not just to get stuck in the seeking. I think that can be a particular challenge for us academics. Academics can get, you know, we can get bound up with our our books and so forth, and we love to do research, we love to discuss things, you know, endlessly have a few arguments with people and so forth, all that kind of thing. But then we can easily keep faith at arm's length. We want to just keep it as an academic's discussion. We don't want faith, I mean, we want God to break into our lives and change our lives because that would be uncomfortable. We might have to change our lifestyle. Things might have to change, and that's getting a little bit too personal. But, of course, God is a personal God who, through Christ, uh, wants and longs to come into our lives. So the Magi didn't get stuck in Jerusalem. From their research, they now knew the shepherd king was going to be born in Bethlehem. They just learned that by the research in Jerusalem. And so the star goes ahead of them. It stops right over Bethlehem. And the word they use for stop is, as I mentioned, it's used in ancient literature for a comet appearing to stop over a particular place. And seeing the star again filled with joy, and now they find the child Jesus now living in Bethlehem with his parents, probably a bit younger than a little bit, uh, not quite yet two years old, judging by what Herod did next in terms of uh, ordering the massacre of kids up to the age of two and so forth. And finally, their seeking of the Magi was over. They bowed down and worshipped this very young child king. I find it fascinating and challenging that here we have these senior academics from a foreign country bowing down to worship a young Jewish child, far too young to have started yet his teaching ministry. In fact, very soon, then we read a bit later, uh, this was a child who was going to be a refugee in Egypt, waiting until the time when King Herod's wrath at having a rival having, uh, had subsided. So having refugees is nothing new. I'm glad we were praying for refugees this morning. Good to remember, Jesus himself, his family, they were refugees also in the Middle East uh, for that period of time. And as the wise men began, uh, they bowed down to worship Jesus. They gave him these three presents, which are full, I think, of meaning for us as we look back, especially, um, especially as we think about the future ministry of Jesus and all that he did for us. Gold, of course, was the gift fit for kings. We read in the Old Testament when uh, Queen Sheba, remember the Queen of Sheba came to honor King Solomon with a visit. We read about that in 1 1 Kings chapter 10. We read that she came with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, and precious stones. So gold costs. Gold chose honor. Of course, this wasn't some attempt to buy privilege or some kind of payback on the part of the wise men. This was a sign that their worship was genuine. It was heartfelt. Today, we don't receive salvation or some special recognition by giving money to the church or something like that. No, for those who belong to Christ, our whole lives belong to him. And what we give to his work and time and money is not because we expect something in return, but because it's part of our worship, like it was for those wise men. We love him because he first loved us. God's grace touches us, and so love flows out from us, or should do, in grateful return. The second present the wise men gave was was incense, or frankincense. And throughout the Old Testament, with the priestly temple system of worship, incense was always associated with with worship, and it was a priestly role to offer incense as a sign to, uh, to God of his people's worship. Out of their hearts, they gave this as a 
uh, as a symbol, a sign of their worship to him. And so, and so here we have uh, wise men offering incense to Jesus, the King, the Son of God, the only one from now on and forever to whom it was appropriate to make such a gift. And the third present, the myrrh, was commonly used at the time as an anointing oil, as an embalming oil, so much so it became a symbol of death. And many years later, after Jesus had died, we read in John chapter 19, the Nicodemus, remember, who uh, was able to secure a tomb for Jesus, he brought along 75 pounds, it says, 75 pounds in weight of myrrh and aloes for embalming the body of Jesus. So why give myrrh as a present for the newborn? That seems a bit strange, doesn't it, as a symbol of death. Well, I mean, for the wise men, it was probably no doubt just a, a, a very valuable gift. But now as we look back, we think about uh, the reason why Jesus came, the way in which he was the great high priest who died for us on the cross, this becomes full of meaning and significance. And so the letter to Hebrews reminds us, chapter 7, unlike the other high priest, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so it was Jesus, king and priest, that the wise men worshipped there in Bethlehem. For, of course, the reason that Jesus came into the world was to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again to newness of life so that as we put our trust in him, we might enter into this new resurrection life. And that message is right there already and these wonderful gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus. So as we enter this Christmas season, uh, if we don't know Christ yet in this personal way, I mean, what a great time to start out on this journey to seek him, giving serious time to, uh, to seek him with all our hearts, remembering that like the wise men, it is Christ himself that we are seeking, the priest who offered his own life for our sin, the kingly shepherd who proclaimed to all who would listen, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So may Christ remain central to our own thoughts, our own lives, as we remember his coming, especially at this time of Christmas. Amen.